0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefield's Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Counterculture, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. Here is Pastor Nick.
1: Of how we will live If he is our king. Furthermore, Jesus is laying out a culture. He's laying out a way of living and relating to people and God and things, which is radically different than what is common to most people in the world. It's an approach to life which is extremely countercultural. And so we pick up here in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is saying something very countercultural in the area of what we would call piety. Now, let me explain what I mean by the word piety, because I'm going to be using it a lot. Uh, What I mean by that is outward practices of spirituality and faith. Okay, so here's what Jesus says in verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In the last chapter, in chapter 5, Jesus, especially towards the end, talked a lot about this topic of righteousness. And the main point that he was making is this, that righteousness is not only an issue of your actions, righteousness is more than that, it's actually an issue of your heart. In other words, God isn't only interested in your outward actions and the things that you actually do outwardly, God cares also very much about what's going on inside your heart and in your mind. Now in chapter 5, Jesus talked about righteousness mostly in terms of morality. But here in chapter 6, Jesus is going to be talking about righteousness as regards piety. Now again, piety being outward practices of spirituality and faith. These are things like going to church, reading your Bible, fasting, giving of tithes and offerings, doing charitable deeds, these kinds of things. Now, it's important to notice this, that both of these things are important to God. These are two aspects of righteousness, and both are important to God, both morality and piety. And I think that's very important to recognize because some people, especially in our society, I think they tend to think that God is concerned really with morality, but not so much with piety. You hear people say things like, you know, God doesn't really care if you go to church or not. God doesn't really care if you read your Bible or or pray or whatever, you know, God doesn't really, he doesn't really care that much if you give tithes or offerings or, you know, give of your finances because, you know, those are just religious things and that's not what God's interested in. God just wants you to live a moral and ethical life. How many times have you heard people say things like that? I think it's very common, especially in our culture. And, And here's what Jesus would say. Well, that's not actually true. I mean, actually, piety is very important to God. He does care about that. So here in this section, Jesus is telling us this. Piety is a good thing. Just make sure you know who your audience is. Make sure you're clear on why you're doing acts of piety and who you're doing them for because a lot of people get off track with that and it can get pretty ugly pretty fast when you're doing acts of piety for the wrong reasons. And so Jesus gives us here the first reason, uh, first wrong reason for piety, and he says it's to be seen by others. If doing acts of piety, to be seen by others, to impress others, that's the, the wrong motivation. It's the wrong way to do it. You know, I think we live in a very image-conscious culture. We're very focused on how we look, how we appear, and how other people perceive us. Your image, you might say, both figuratively and literally, your image is very important in our culture. And this can easily bleed over into our thinking about spiritual matters as well. The thinking kind of goes like this, you know, that it doesn't really matter if I am spiritual. What's important is that other people perceive me to be spiritual, right? The other people think that I'm spiritual, that I have the image of being a spiritual person. And I think especially nowadays with the internet and social media being such a big part of life, you know, it's almost like social media is an extension of your identity to the point where, you know, it's almost like if you don't post something online, well, then it might as well have never even happened, Now, I use social media. I do think it's a great tool for keeping in touch and and spreading messages. Uh, And I can't help but, now think about this, I cannot help but think what the Apostle Paul would have done if he would have had the internet in his day. He would have freaked out this guy. He would have been like, wait a second here. You're telling me I can reach billions of people with the gospel like without even getting out of my bed, I can write a letter to the Galatians and it doesn't have to be carried by some guy who's probably gonna get murdered on the way and it's gonna take him like three months. It'll arrive in like, Two seconds to the Galatians? You mean I could preach the gospel to people in every corner of the world without having to get on boats and get shipwrecked and get bitten by snakes and all kinds of stuff like that? Sign me up. I want a laptop and I want some free Wi Fi right now. That's what he would have said. The Apostle Paul, if he was around today, he would have seen the internet as the greatest avenue mankind has ever had for spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. He would have had a blog. He would have had a Facebook account. He would have been all over Twitter blowing the thing up. He'd have a podcast. He would be all over that thing. But the same things that are great about social media that make them an amazing, powerful tool for good are also the things which can lend themselves to its being detrimental. And I think we all realize that. But here's the thing about social media that's very, you know, core to what it is. For better or for worse, social media is a, it's a controlled environment right? in which you control what other people can see about you or what they can't see about you, what they know about you or what they don't know about you. In other words, you project an image about yourself. That's what you're doing on social media. You are projecting an image about yourself to the world, and it may or may not reflect reality. For example, I know people who if you would look at their Facebook, you look at their Instagram, you would think that they're just happy, smiling people. They love life. They love their family. They love their spouse. They're happily married. They love Jesus, and they're just happy and fulfilled, and everything's awesome. But in reality, that same person is actually super depressed. Their marriage is sputtering and struggling. Their walk with the Lord is not strong at all, and yet they project this image online that everything's good. But it's not actually reality. Now, you might say, well, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to just like put out all their junk out there on the internet for everybody to see? That's not a good idea either. The point is this. We we live in a society which is increasingly image conscious and image focused, in which it is easier and, and more common than ever before to project an image about yourself to the world for people to see and think things about you which may or may not be true. But here's the thing, that God sees reality. God sees reality. He knows what's actually going on in reality, in your heart, in your mind, in your relationships. You can't fool him. You can't pull one over on him. He sees through the fake smiles and the misleading facades. God sees through the image that we try to project about ourselves to the reality. And what God desires is for us to be authentic with him because he knows it anyway, so, piety is good. It's just very important. And this is what Jesus is saying it's so important that you know your audience. Who are you doing that for? Are you doing those acts of piety simply out of reverence and devotion to God? Or are you doing them to be seen by others? Now, somebody might say, well, wait a second. In our last chapter, I specifically remember in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine. So that other people will see it and they'll see your good works and they'll give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So wasn't Jesus there saying that we should have a very public spiritual life and that we should let other people see our good works? Absolutely, that's what he was saying. Well, well then what is this about where it says that we should be doing things in secret? Well, Well, here's the difference. Think about it this way. The followers of Jesus should be seen doing good works, but they should not be doing good works in order to be seen. Does that make sense? And that's what a person is doing when they pray publicly, not to speak to God, but to be heard by other people because they're trying to instruct people or correct people or even impress people who are hearing them pray. He says it's an insult to God and it's an insult to the people who you are indirectly speaking to. The Greek word used here when he says, go into your room, that Greek word used for room actually refers to a closet. And not just any kind of closet, but the kind of closet where precious things and treasures were kept. And that's an interesting picture that Jesus is painting there, right? That when you go to spend time with God, not not to impress people, not to be heard by people, but to genuinely, sincerely commune with God, there are treasures that await you in that place. And now Jesus instructs us about the right attitude about prayer. Verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What, What God desires from us is not empty ritualism, but authentic relationship. So Jesus says, when you pray... Avoid vain repetition. Avoid words with no meaning, with no heart, just kind of empty filler. Jesus says, when you pray, don't feel the need to even use a lot of words. Now, this was very countercultural to the thinking of Jesus' day, and probably even to the thinking uh, in our day as well. There were rabbis in Jesus' day who would say things like this, Whoever is long in prayer is heard.
0: You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message.
1: Another rabbi said this, Whenever the righteous make their prayers long, their prayer is heard. And the general thinking was, the longer, the better. The more words you use, the more God will be inclined to hear you and answer your prayer. But Jesus says, that is not how children of God should pray to their heavenly Father. One common Jewish prayer of Jesus' day began like this. This is something that they would memorize and they would repeat often. So this was kind of the intro to prayer, right? It would say, blessed, praised, glorified, exalted, honored, magnified, and lauded be the name of the Holy One. And then they would go on from there. Now that's something they memorized. They repeated it. And they repeated it somewhat mindlessly, right? Now, now think about this. If you have children and your children come to you And before they ever say anything to you, they come with this like long intro, right? Oh, dearest, kindest, generous, good-looking, and handsome father, yada, 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 for five minutes, right, before they ever speak to you or talk to you about anything, you would say, well, thanks, I guess, but you don't really need to do that every time. Just, you're my child. Just talk to me. Tell me what's going on. I want to hear from you. I love it when you talk to me. Do you need something? How are you feeling? Just talk to me. You know, in many religions, too, prayer consists of the repetition of memorized prayers. Sometimes even in languages which the person praying does not even understand. We worked in a refugee camp for years, my wife and I, and we worked with a lot of Muslims. And many of these Muslims were from Africa and from Southeast Europe and like Bosnia, Chechnya, places like that. And so they would pray multiple times a day. Five times a day they would pray, and they would pray in Arabic because that's how you have to pray in their religion. But the thing is that they didn't speak Arabic. Like they didn't even speak a word of Arabic. They had just memorized these Arabic prayers, and most of them had no idea what the prayers said. Like we would ask them, like, what what does that mean? And they would I don't know, I just say it, this is, that's how we pray. And they would pray five times a day, repeating these memorized phrases that they didn't even understand, they didn't know what they were saying. It was literally mindless repetition. And Jesus says, no, that is not how a Christian should pray. A Christian is a person who has become a child of God and that's not how children speak to their fathers. I mean, imagine if you had children and every time they talked to you, they just repeated some memorized phrase and then went on their way. And that would be heartbreaking for a parent because a loving parent desires a relationship with their children. They don't just want some dutiful repetition void of mind and of heart. So when you talk to God, Jesus tells us, he says, it should be sincere. It should be from the heart. It should be an expression of your relationship with him, not just heaping up empty words and phrases. God isn't impressed with the length of your prayers or by the eloquence of your prayers, but by the heart of of your prayers. True eloquence in prayer is found in the depth of its desire and in the simplicity of its faith. God doesn't measure the prayer of a Christian by length, but by weight. How much substance does it have? In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon says, he says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You don't have to pile on Words and phrases when you pray, just pray. Pray with faith, pray with fervency. This is all based on a principle which Jesus reminds them of there in verse eight, where he says, your father knows what you need before you even ask of him. If God already knows everything, then the purpose of prayer is not to inform God about a situation. Like, God, I don't know if you know what's going on down here, but you should really take a look at this. The purpose is not to inform God, but it's for us to connect with God as, though, as one who loves us and cares about our problems and, and one who has invited us to come to him with our needs. So again, it's important to know your audience. Depending on who your audience is, it will change the way that you pray. If you're praying to be seen and heard by others, or if you're praying uh, so that you can feel good about yourself because you clocked in like 12 minutes straight, or because you're praying to God for the sake of connecting with God, your audience, knowing your audience, will affect how you pray. Who you're doing it for and why you're doing it will affect what you do and how you do it. Now go with me to verse 16. We're going to Look next week at how Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the famous uh, Lord's Prayer. That's going to be next Sunday. But here, I want to go to verse 16 and 17 because they belong to the same discussion about knowing your audience and doing acts of piety to be seen by others. So he says in verse 16, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, like with giving and praying, Jesus assumes that his followers will fast. For people in Jesus' day, fasting was considered a core spiritual discipline, and observant Jews would fast twice a week, on Monday and on Thursday. The reason? Because Monday was the day that Moses went up the mountain to receive the law, and Thursday was the day that he came down. Now, a fast, as they understood it, was not just giving up you know, chocolate or soap operas or something, right? But for them, a fast actually meant the total absence of food. Now, it is my observation that fasting is something which most evangelical Christians today do not practice regularly. But I think that in our day and age and in our culture, we need the spiritual discipline of fasting perhaps more than any other time in history. You know, it's, it's become this thing where if you'd ask modern evangelical Christians, what are the core spiritual disciplines? They would include reading of scripture, but they would not necessarily include fasting. They, it might not even come to their mind. But Jesus includes it as a core spiritual discipline. I would say in our society today, we have a greater need to practice the spiritual discipline of fasting than at any other time ever before. And I'll tell you why. Because fasting has to do with self-denial and self-discipline. And it, we live in a consumer culture Our society drives us to be consumers and to consume all the time. And you know what fasting does? Fasting is a way of saying, I'm going to stop consuming. I'm going to take a break from consuming. Let me tell you, that is very liberating in the consumer society that we live in today. It's a way of teaching ourselves to not let our physical desires drive us, but that we make a conscious choice and decision to choose What desires we fulfill and what we don't. To deny our flesh and to make our spiritual life a priority. Fasting is also linked to prayer. Every time you see fasting, it's always linked with prayer. When you fast, you're denying your flesh, but you're also spending that time seeking God and praying. So, Paul the Apostle, he put it this way He says, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Now, think about this. How many people are the opposite of that? Instead of making their body their servant or their slave, they are enslaved to their body. That's what addiction is. I mean, it's when you become a slave to your body's desires and demands. But instead of doing that, the disciple of Jesus is to be a person who is free from addiction and is a slave to no thing except for the will of God. Fasting is a way for us to set our priorities and say, I will not be a slave to my body, but I will train myself in self-discipline and self-control. I will not be a constant consumer. I will take a break from consumption and deny my flesh in order to focus on spiritual things. So fasting is a good thing. It's something that Jesus assumed his followers would do, but he wanted to make sure that they didn't do it the way that some people did it. Now, when the Pharisees would fast clearly, here's what they would do. They wanted to make sure that everybody knew about it. So they would not wash themselves. They'd just look terrible. And they'd walk around with long faces, moaning and groaning about how hungry they were and how hard it was to, to be a follower of God. But you know what? Their goal was to show how spiritual they are. But Jesus says, no, no. He says, consider your audience. Who are you doing this for? Are you doing this to impress other people or are you doing it for the Lord? If you're really doing it for sincere reasons, here's the test. Don't let anybody know about it. Don't post about it on Facebook like, man, I'm fasting this week and it's super hard. But, you know, some people got to do it because that's just what you do when you're hardcore about Jesus. You know, he says, don't take a picture of yourself with this frowny face and post it on Instagram. I'm hungry and now I know how people in third world countries feel, Right. No, instead, just put on nice clothes, fix yourself up, make yourself look good so that no one would ever know that you're fasting. Just keep it between you and God. You see, if William Shakespeare's right and the whole world is a stage and we're all actors and actresses, then when it comes to the area of piety, make sure that you're performing for an audience of one. Make sure that there is only one person who you're trying to impress and trying to please, God himself, that there's one person individual you're doing these things for and whose approval matters to you, and that's God himself. This is the point of what Jesus is saying in this section, and it's an important point that piety is a good thing. You should pray, you should read your Bible, you should go to church, you should give, you should fast. These are spiritual disciplines that make you stronger. There are ways that you exercise your faith. There are ways that you partner with God to become the man or the woman of God that he desires you to be. But just make sure you're doing it for the right audience. Make sure you're clear on why you're doing those things, who you're doing them for, because a lot of people get off track with that. And, and rather than doing those things unto the Lord, they do them to be seen by other people in order to build a image or a reputation or a persona about themselves, which may or may not be true, but it's all about what other people think about them. You know, the message of the gospel in closing, the message of the gospel is that God loves you. He loves you not because you're a good person. He loves you in spite of your flaws and your failures and your sins. In fact, before you ever loved him or before the thought ever came into your mind that you might even remotely like him, God loved you so much that he did something incredibly radical, that he might make you his own. The God of the universe, perfect, holy, transcendent, he took on human flesh and he walked the dusty streets of this world. Why? In order to relate to you, in order to show you his ways. But even more than that, he came to save you by giving his life for you in exchange for you. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death in order to take the judgment for your sins upon himself. And having died, he overcame death and the grave. He blew up hole in the prison walls of death and rose from the dead in order to make a way for us also to escape death and have eternal life through him. That is the good news of the gospel. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And because of the gospel, here's the amazing thing. That we who were at one time enemies of God, we can now become children of God. We can receive a new identity, a new future in him because of what he has done for us. You can relate to God as a child relates to a loving father. And here's what that means, and here's how it all ties in. As a result of that, because of the gospel, you don't have to worry about putting on a show. Do you realize that? You can relax, like you don't have to put on a show because God knows you fully He sees beyond the facades and the masks. He sees down to the reality of who you really are in your heart of hearts, and he loves you completely. And you know what that means? It means that you're free. You're free to be real. You're free to be honest. You're free to be yourself. Because God knows who you really are, and yet he loves you completely. You see, that's the thing about putting on masks. We all kind of have this assumption that either we can be fully known or fully loved, but not both. Because if somebody were to know us fully, They wouldn't be able to love us. And in order to be loved fully, we have to keep some things secret, or we have to project a certain image. But here's the message of the gospel, that God knows you fully, and yet he loves you completely, and because of that, you're free. You're free to stop putting on a show. You're free to just be who you are. Do you understand what what an incredible sense of security that gives a person? The message of the gospel is that God knows you fully and he loves you completely. And because that's true, it means you're free to stop pretending. You're free to seek God from a pure heart and an honest heart. You're free to pray and give and fast and all for the right motives. Not to be seen by other people, but in order to develop and foster this relationship with God. And it's when you do it that way that you receive your reward from him. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that before we ever loved you or even remotely liked you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you came and you gave your life for us in order that we might be children of God. And what an amazing thing that is. And Lord, may we truly relate to you as a father. May we speak to you as a father. May we do things unto you as a child unto a father who is completely secure in the love of that father for them. Lord, would you do that for us? Would you enliven our hearts and refresh that sense of what the gospel means for us as we go today, that we might live unto you. In Jesus' name we pray.